Hi and hello, Agile friends. You are tuned in to Agile Coffee, discussing the world of Lean, Agile, and Scrum using the Lean Coffee format. I'm Vibonacci, your host and barista. Sit back, relax, we'll serve you right up. Yes, and welcome back to another fine episode of Agile Coffee. My name is Victor Bonacci, and I am joined, as always, by John Jorgensen at Water Scrumbon. Uh, Dr. Dave Cornelius is with us again at D-R-C-O-R-N-E-L-I-U-S-I-N-F-O. That's Dr. Cornelius Info on Twitter. And Brett, Brett Palmer, at Brett underscore Palmer on Twitter. Reach out to any of us. I can be reached on Twitter at Agile Coffee. This is our final episode recorded at Paradise Perks. Unfortunately, they are closing down their location, which makes us all so sad. It's been great coffee and great times. This episode is split into three parts. This is part two that we're listening to. In the previous episode, we had discussed the topic of culture eats what? Also, agile practices make me tired. And finally... Two new uses for Agile Coffee, the afterglow and cold calling. So if you missed any of those topics, you can go back on iTunes and Stitcher or on our website and find episode six of the Agile Coffee podcast. Today we are going to once again go through some of the topics that we laid out. The topics coming up today include zero QA, planned serendipity, and enabling innovation. Remember that you can reach out to us on Twitter using the hashtags AskAgileCoffee to shoot us a question or tell Agile Coffee to share your own experiences. We do follow the rules of Lean Coffee. We time box all of our topics to initially five minutes and then extend them out three minutes or until they're otherwise extinguished. A reminder is set at the time and we give a thumbs up, thumbs down vote to continue or not. We have written our topics on cards and prioritized them, and I already told you what you're going to get today. So without any further ado, good morning, gentlemen. And our next topic is Zero QA. Dr. Dave? Why do we need QA in the first place? If you wrote great software, then we wouldn't have to have a QA person come along after the fact, or even if you're doing peer testing to come and to uh, validate that your work was good in the first place. So the, the whole concept is that you do more peer testing. You leverage test-driven development to identify what will, what's going to be successful or is going to fail uh, with the application that you're building. And then the QA and the developer, they're interchangeable. So the QA guy could get in there and fix the code himself, or the developer could turn around and validate the code by taking on those QA activities. Okay, um... But I've seen, um, you know, companies hire QAs just because they're cheaper. Mm. And maybe I, I can get a, along with a QA person and make it a QA-BA person combo. And so um, because a developer is going to maybe have attitude, like, I, I don't want to QA that. That's somebody else's job. So so to your point, I, I think that there's there's value in having the developers take complete ownership in their code. And I think that's kind of where you're going 
um, with that. But at the same time, then you've got that person that's looking at the the budget, going, "Well, wait a second, I can I can get some QA people that are a lot cheaper." Isn't it cheaper not to hire the QA? I well, think well, it's the argument. Well, well, the, the argument is it's not 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 to hire the QA, but to get additional value from QA and the developer. So they're playing dual roles. Yeah, and they're interchangeable. So if you need more code written, then instead of having a QA person queued up waiting to, to validate code. At that point, he could be writing code as well. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so this gets into the in, into the fact that the QAs really need to be more like junior developers, mm-hmm. becoming on the path to becoming more of a senior developer, right? So I think that's rather true. than have a completely separate QA role, role mm-hmm. QA is really more uh, of of just a, a path for development. Yeah. I don't, know, I don't know if it's a path, but it's really a, an additional skill because most QA guys could actually code most of the ones that i know you know See, the ones that i know that's cannot yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah so by the way to put this in a broader context i don't know if you're considering this but um so in mob programming uh, in the instance that that i'm familiar with like they have zero bugs like nothing no such thing as an escape bug they've got like maybe seven or eight developers all looking at the same code at the same time one person at the keyboard and so if if you're able to generate code that's already been tested and then you know released and there's no there's no bugs coming back to document i think you are making a huge savings and and i think that that might be one of the attractions to like paired programming or, or mob programming um and there there is such a skill it's, i mean you you're you're thinking of ways to break your code and I think even test-driven development requires that type of a mindset, right? Yeah. So this, this you could maybe even reframe this as uh, paired or mob programming with test-driven development. This yeah. is what it becomes. We call it peer testing. Uh-huh. And, and, and so the reality is, is that you have to have the TDD as a driving force as part of this. Yeah. I think trying to do it um, without some structure... Um, to, to really dr- drive the process will be uh, seriously <laughs> bad. Yeah, yeah. It's um, I think difficult to switch uh, thinking modes if there's such a thing. You know, if, uh, maybe there is six thinking hats. But um, when you're when you're create when you're designing and creating the code, then to take a step back and say how could I be wrong um, requires you to back out of you know that creative mode and say what what are the most difficult things that this code could do or what are the unintended uses of this code that could potentially expose its dysfunction? Well, it's also the human factor of trying to be objective. Uh, when I used to be a developer, mm-hmm. no, my code always works. Are you kidding me? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just, no, it wasn't written to work that way. Yeah. How dare you? <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and this is about collaboration in general, yes, right? More perspectives point. is yes. great. Yeah. And, and haven't we established, or I guess you could say to the Agile community, the Agile community has established the profitability of collaborative uh, software creation. However, the rest of the world is not yet fully sold on that. I still see raging debates over whether paired programming is like 50% waste. And it all just depends, I think, on where you draw the cost boundaries, what you're going to consider as the cost of fully working code and you know I obviously have my opinion we won't be able to convince everybody but maybe over time 
the more wildly profitable software creating ventures or enterprises that we see maybe could be convincing. All right, wraps up that topic. Remember, once again, that you can always reach out to us on Twitter with hashtag TellAgileCoffee. So let us know what you're thinking. If you have a question, please use the hashtag AskAgileCoffee. Our next topic now, John, this one is one of yours. It says Planned Serendipity. Right. So as I'm thinking about the need for structured conversation, Agile Coffee is one approach to that. I think that what we're trying to do is plan serendipity. And by that, I mean, we don't really know where a conversation's going to go until we've had one. And we want to keep it as productive as possible in terms of learning. I think that's why we have most of our conversations. And the, the Agile Coffee framework, it exposes, exposes opportunities to learn um, by giving real-time feedback about how long we're going to stay on this topic and what people's level of interest is in that topic, sort of real-time. And the instance that I recently saw where this was uh, abundantly clear was where we had a conversation with somebody, I guess generally about coaching Agile teams, what are some of the key lessons that you learn over the years, right. and, um, and maybe how to evolve into becoming a very effective, uh, valuable Agile coach. And there was this topic inside of that about um, gangplank which is a co-worker space with a different model yeah. with a different model um, and I had I had knowledge of this gangplank uh, entity long before this conversation but probably never brought it up because I I had a one misunderstanding about its format and two didn't see the value uh, to knowing about it or, or being involved with one until this conversation came up. So why don't we talk about what Gangplank is exactly for those listeners out there not familiar with it and then why yeah. something like that model might be useful for people. So this is this is a challenge. I, I only know secondhand, let's say, about what Gangplank is. I think that it's a co-working space that's funded by some municipal or government entity and that there is this social capital is that the way you phrase it social currency where you volunteer your time to help other members of this uh, gangplank community and in return you get access to their assets and utilities okay but but in terms of planned serendipity um you're talking about planned luck Yes, exactly. <laughs> so the exactly question it. is, how do you plan luck? Right. Um, like since luck is, is, is uncertainty, and it's very mm -hmm. uncertain. Yep. You, you never know what's going to happen. Right. So how do you plan that, so or how do you plan being, for that? Being available at the, to discuss it? I, I think if no. you... I, th I think that it has to do with your focus right. on your interests. Right. right. But if you're also, if you're mm -hmm. also knowledgeable, mm -hmm. right, and then you're with the right people at the right time, mm -hmm. then there's opportunities that you can seize because you are knowledgeable about whatever that is, mm -hmm. that those opportunities might be able to present themselves, whether or not they're learning opportunities or career opportunities or whatever. 
Um, so it's like lean know. coffee. Yeah. Uh, yes. Where, 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 where we've come together on yes. Saturdays and I think also Thursdays. Yes. Uh, where we're discussing different topics. So it's this is planned, obviously. So, so the luck that you, that, that you plan for is that you get new knowledge or new mm-hmm. insights. So there's two leverage. elements here, I think. One is the, synchron- the synchronicity of being in the, in the same time and place and willing to participate in the discussion. And the second one is higher transparency than a traditional conversation would have, which is you're saying, I just wrote a card because I'm more interested in this topic than others that I haven't written cards for. And then the other one is as you start drilling down into the specifics, people are giving a Roman vote, thumbs up or thumbs down, on how relevant that is to their interests or their experience. If they have experience or information, knowledge, they're going to offer it. And then other people are going to respond more transparent to how useful that is to them in the moment. So Gangplank, again, is the example where I knew about Gangplank but never talked about it with you know either of you gentlemen um, in all the months that, or years that we've known each other. However, when I see in the conversation that you guys are responding um, – with a great interest to it, all of a sudden I'm thinking, wow, okay, so this was relevant to you. This conversation, if it maybe had been structured um, without the presence of you know this this agile coach that we knew, probably would have surfaced and probably would have we would have pursued it in greater right. depth. Right, and just just to add one comment to that, I think the mm-hmm. the, the context of using gangplank was mm-hmm. uh, that particular agile coach had. Um, Experience with it had had experience with gangplank, and then yeah. well, through that uh, coaching uh, classes through gangplank was then able yeah. to um, actually get a consulting opportunity through that from somebody mm-hmm. who attended one of those particular classes. Yeah, so, that was so the relevancy. That was the, that was the relevancy of using yep. gangplank as this yeah, plan serendipity. Exactly. Yes. So. I, I could see how that applies to even the work that I'm doing with um, these kids in LA. I'm yep. teaching them. Um, Scrum, teaching them uh, programming concepts, teaching them to communicate, risk planning. So it's, it's essentially I'm giving my time and my expertise and knowledge mm-hmm. to a, a group of kids in, in an urban area working at a church. And my luck is that now I'll, I'll be able to use that information to probably do a TEDx talk, mm-hmm. for example, yep. which may also you know elevate my own experience. And so I think like having intentional conversations um, in, in the time box also helps bring that focus, gets us to what we're looking for from, from uh, the people that we happen to know. Okay, so here we go with the next topic, enabling innovation. Well, my thought is, is, is that, you know, Agile is a practice. It, it really enables for sustaining and disruptive innovation. So it gives us two paths to, to, to move forward with things that we've already built that we have to improve upon to add value to our customers and things that we have not yet built, which, which I call disruptive innovation. So I, I look at the practices of giving us an opportunity to build better products for our customers. But so you're talking about sustaining and disruptive innovation. Yes, I'm talking about sustaining and, and disruptive innovation. So when you think about it, that if, if you could continue continually go through and, and add enhancements to your product in a way that you're getting value frequently, which which is the, the whole concept and yep. the premise of, of, of agility in the first place, um, how does that continue to enable innovation, you know, in a long-term sustainable way? And, and more, moreover, is that as you're applying these principles, 
how do you really engage disruptive innovation? Because that's harder to do, right? Yeah. To be able to build something new that overtakes the leader in the marketplace. So uh, as a practice where you have all of those individuals engaged, collaborating, thus it gives us an opportunity to, to innovate and build something new. Do we want to just spell out disruptive innovation versus sustaining yeah. innovation? So sustaining innovation really focuses on existing products where you're enhancing um, that product to meet a customer need. Uh, disruptive innovation essentially uh, is brand new things that you bring into to market where that, that new product that you brought to market is really surpassing the existing um, leader in the market. I'll give you an example. Apple, for example, with the iPhone. Nokia was the leader in, 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 in the mobile space. With the advent of the iPhone, well, Apple su surpassed them drastically in terms of selling more products, having a bigger community than Nokia did. But Nokia had the opportunity to really, if, if they were smart enough, you know, yeah, lead so their you, revolution. So if you're talking about disruptive innovation in your own uh, workspace, you're planning on yeah. the obsolescence of your current product by developing something newer and better. Something newer and better, or even from your competition, right? Because sure. you, you definitely have competition in the market space to deal with. And is there any kind of um, an 80-20 rule that applies to like organizations and how they focus on one or the other, sustaining or disruptive innovation? We oh, talked about that we did. yesterday. We so did. What, what we heard was that about 10% of your effort should probably be to disrupt, creating disruptive innovation and 80% to sustaining. I'm sorry, 90% to sustaining. No. Um, you go ahead. No, go ahead. And, and the other thought is, so yes, Agile, I believe, does address both, but through separate frameworks. And I think really the disruptive innovation comes through a lean startup type of mm -hmm. framework. And there is a movement to embed lean startup in the enterprise. Um, I think in the past, it's mostly been through uh, acquisitions, mergers and acquisitions that enterprises acquire those types of startups. So um, I want to raise the, the point of where within the organization this um, type of innovation would happen. Because if you're, because I, I believe that innovation should happen throughout the organization at the different levels. But when you are looking at that innovation, uh, the innovation that is happening at the team level is going to be a different type of innovation than that would happen at an, a strategic executive level. Mm -hmm. but, but do, right. Well, I, I want to say two things. In terms of the distribution of, of percentage, um, in, in a good portfolio, you know, 10% would be dis disruptive, right, right around what, what they'll call, you know, 20 to 30 percent is what would be sustaining because it's still new stuff that you're building, right. and then the remaining is keep the lights on, right? Maintenance, right? Yep. right. right. Okay. Because sustaining, you know, bread and butter, yeah, products. bread and butter stuff. So there's three tiers, and I think it's kind of scary when you only have like two tiers. But now, but I consider that third tier is that operations that's keeping the lights on, right? Yeah. Yes, yes, right. So, so is that really innovation? I mean, no, or, innovation yeah. can come from operation. Yeah, yeah. When you think sure. of, of I mean, some of the things that have gone on with, with Kaizen, well, to, well, to right? streamline your existing operations, you can certainly do that. Mm -hmm. So it's it's sustaining innovation that comes right. from the operations, and the disruptive innovation usually comes from a laboratory, yeah. Um, yeah. and. Yeah, like Qualcomm, I know, has a separate department or entity that's like Qualcomm right. Labs, and they might have a team of like six or seven um, developers, and 
they're churning through experiments. They're they're creating prototypes, and I believe doing pretty much what a lean startup would do, which is trying to get empirical empirical data that justifies or validates some of their assumptions commercially. But that's that's one view. Let me give yeah. you another view. How about building an, an innovative organization? An organization where everyone gets to participate in that process. If, if, mm-hmm. been, if you go back to when you remember we used to have those innovation boxes mm-hmm. and the whole point of that innovation box was to engage people to put new ideas in, right? Because everyone knows that even the guy who's not part of the mainstream product line could come up with a new idea. And, I mean, we could cite many cases of where that has been the case, mm-hmm. right? So it's how do we enable innovation using agility and engage everyone within the organization? I'll give you an example. Um, Cognizant, one of those organizations, 150,000 people, they're trying this experiment to get 150,000 people globally to participate in innovation to the point that they've taken, a, when I used to work with them, they would take us up to Stanford University and talk about design principles, try to get us in the framework to understand how do we build something new, improve a process. And it doesn't have to be something drastic, but how do we engage everyone in the organization? Can you imagine 150,000 people participating in a process like that? Yeah, trying to get your whole staff to think entrepreneurially. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and, and that's the thing. is like that's a lot of risk. It's probably a risk that Cognizant can afford to make because they, they do have that kind of scale. And not everybody's going to be interested. I think yeah. you know, the fact is there's people who have an idea um, at one moment um, that they weren't planning on having. It wasn't, it wasn't intentional. But um, there, there's, I guess you could say, a, a certain kind of environment that's conducive to ideation. And by creating that environment, anything could happen. And so, yeah. you know, if you set that groundwork, like, you know what? If you have an idea, even if you don't have the time to flesh it out, propose the idea and let some other group of individuals step forward, carve out some of their, their week or their month to try to pursue that, and then you get something. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting that they had a VP of a VP of innovation just to support that. Yeah. All right. I'm passionate great. about innovation. Yeah. <laughs> innovation is a great thing. I mean, that's why we're all in it. Yeah. Very good. Okay, the next card says coaching circles and yeah. career paths. Good one. Right. So uh, this is a topic uh, just lately I've been thinking about more, which is uh, I want to, on my career path, have greater skills, experiences, and insights about how to be a good Agile coach. And the question would be in, to myself, how, how do I become that? How do I acquire those things? And, of course, there's a couple of books that have been written inside the Agile community about coaching. And then there's just general books about, you know, professional coaches, career coaches, life coaches. Um, And then there's uh, some training, formal training that you can get. And then there's, I guess, what you could say a little bit less formal and maybe less concentrated but longer-term training. And one of, in that last bucket, you could say that there is the coaching circle. I didn't realize it until lately, but there's a couple of formats that coaching circles take. Some of them are not 
some of them are lighter weight than others. And I think it was the lighter weight coaching circles where it's just people come together, kind of like we're doing here with Agile Coffee. If they all happen to be Agile coaches, then they're talking about stuff that they do. And maybe they're actually coaching each other a little bit. But there's more, I guess you could say, structured approaches to coaching circles where, you know, you have a theme and maybe everybody's reading the same book or they're they're trying to bring together their collective experience they break out into one-on-one and they talk about the really hard stuff but they're not offering solutions they're maybe asking powerful questions um, and getting conversations that lead to discovery so it's kind of a self-cleaning self-sustaining system rather than like a an expert or an SME you know dispensing deep knowledge to students or a classroom and more than many other exercises this really calls upon everyone else's individual listening skills yeah. making sure they're actively listening so that they can kind of provide mm-hmm. feedback without giving hard quests hard answers to, to mm-hmm. questions yeah. which but is hard to do I just want to tell you that yeah. you're a great coach oh, and, and, and uh, don't ever forget that I, I think that. sometimes as we try to learn more about ourselves, and, and, and it's good for someone to give feedback like I just gave you, that to take that and, and move forward with it. Because, you know, oftentimes we look to other people who have done this before and have been yeah. doing it for a while, but are they really truly that successful? Are they more successful than you are, for, for example? So uh, I would, this is just my, my, my observation that you have a great skill and a great touch that you should develop that and, and experiment because that's the yep. way they have learned and that's the way you will learn as well. It would be... Uh, I want to say something. Almost. I, I'm, I'm actually really curious as to how one would measure, let's say maybe 10 weeks into having a coaching circle, how, how the team that or the people that are participating within that coaching circle would measure the success or failure of that coaching circle? That's a really good question. And my instinctive response would be my confidence, my level of confidence, like let's say on a scale of 1 to 10, that I can have a an influence, a positive influence on my coachee right. um, or the team that I'm coaching would be my metric. I now, want I want to feel like I know the right thing to say or not say. Now, do you think the participants within that coaching circle would have more skin in the game to participate if they paid a membership into that coaching circle? I, I personally do think so, yeah. Okay. But, but I think on the other side, it's, it's not just paying in, right. but the fact that you could develop other coaches. Right. right. Leadership is about building other leaders. Sure. So, to me, that is the true measurement. That if I walk into an organization and I coach up five teams and I have two leaders who's, who, who come out of there as being able to coach others and bring other people to uh, another level in the organization, uh, to me, that is a great measure. So that's your measure as a coaching circle leader. Yeah. And what about um, if you have all of the participants in the circle kind of start off the program, the circle program, with kind of defining their expectations and kind of setting a baseline and then coming back to it after X number of circles and right. kind of self like course correcting. Yeah. So that's a, that's a re- really good segue then to, to the other point is about the scrum certified scrum trainers helping agile coaches become other certified scrum trainers. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> my my, my thing is, and, and I have a big problem with that, I, personally. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think that, I don't think it's necessary for us to fit into that that little small circle that everyone is creating through the Scrum Alliance. I think there are great opportunities that are happening in other organizations. PMI is ripe. Mm-hmm. 600,000 to 800,000 members globally. There's yeah. a great opportunity to go in there. And they have a certification called Agile Certified Professional where today right. you get that ACP, you could go in there and start coaching and start training individuals in that discipline. So I would mind us to be cautious and not be so myopic yeah. and have a broader vision beyond just yep. what Scrum Alliance have to offer. Yeah, that's certainly true. I, I think it's, you know, when I look at the myopicness of, of my own way of looking at what I do, um, you know, I, I see like, oh gosh, it's not all just about IT. There's like a whole non-IT world out there and non-IT industries. And then, like you say, it, I, I have great passion for what the Scrum Alliance is doing. And that's really how I cut my teeth on um, project management and training and coaching and all these things. And I'm still doing that. But it's a bigger world than Scrum Alliance, or, or I'm sorry, than, yeah, Scrum Alliance or Agile Alliance yep. or PMI. It's just, it's just so large. And so as we're looking, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so when we're looking for diversity, I mean, that's where I see strength is like when you have something to offer in almost every situation with almost any kind of professional and, and it helps then you've really got something quite valuable that is worthy of transferring to other people. And that's, that's like you say, you learn by doing. Yeah. So you, you, you learn coaching by coaching and training by training. And we're, we, we, we live in a community that has members of PMI, members of Scrum Alliance, members of Agile Alliance, members of No Alliances yeah. that, that we could probably connect with and together sharpen our own axes. I, I, I strongly believe that. I, I think that this is a coaching circle mm-hmm. where I'm learning new mm-hmm. things, and I'm sure everyone here is learning new things as we have have these dialogues. But I, I think it's important for us to, you know, be intentional, yeah. build a plan, execute mm-hmm. that plan, you know, within your own organization, and, and do yeah. some measurement. Yeah. Um, am I helping individuals to get better, mm-hmm. and in what way, and how mm-hmm. much? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that we could all develop that. I, I, I strongly don't believe that I have to follow one guy mm-hmm. uh, or two people or 12 people, yeah. <laughs> for that matter, to, to, to really tell me how good of a coach that I could be. Yeah. And that's the other thing about, like, it's kind of like culture. It's Coaching is the same way. It's amorphous. There's no coach meter You yeah. can't, you know. <laughs> and not so, yet. Not yet. <laughs> Coach-o-matic. Uh, and so it's through the eyes of other coaches, like yeah. telling me, "Hey, John, you're like here. You're you're higher than before, or you're you're fossilizing, or you're regressing, or something." Yeah. It, that's the only that feedback. Human yeah. feedback is the only way I think I can know objectively. Well, where am I? Would it be stronger from the people you coached or from an external coach? I think from the external coach, but okay. maybe both. Both is valuable, right? Yeah, right. The 360 feedback is what I'm yeah, thinking about, oh, right? Point, yeah, value. I agree. All right, so we want to know what you think. Are you part of a coaching circle, formally or informally? Let us know on Twitter using the hashtag TellAgileCoffee. Let us know where you feel you are as a coach as well. All opinions are valid. Get them to us, and we will happily discuss at a future upcoming podcast. 
That brings us to the end of part two of this recording from Paradise Perks. Tune in to Agile Coffee podcast episode eight for part three of our final episode recorded at Paradise Perks. I'd like once again to thank my wonderful guests today. We had Dr. Dave Cornelius, Brett Palmer, and John Jorgensen. Visit us online at agilecoffee.com and participate in the discussion. Reach out to me at Agile Coffee. Agile Coffee. Coffee. Coffee.